morning, everyone. What a wonderful uh, song and what truth um, behind it and what encouragement that comes from it. Let's turn to God's Word this morning in Nehemiah chapter 8. We are continuing our journey in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. If you've got a Bible, would you just open it with me as we read together? When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law which Moses had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Matitaya, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zachariah, and Meshulam. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josahad, Hanan, and Peliah. All of them instructed the people in the law. While the people were standing there, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. We are really continuing in the journey, and yet we are at a turning point in the story of Nehemiah. There is a really interesting story that uh, Max Lucado uh, wrote in one of his books called The Applause of Heaven. Uh, and it's a legend. Don't know whether it's true or not, but it's an interesting story. And it's part of the many legends surrounding the Taj Mahal building in India. And uh, it seems like the favorite wife of the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan had died and devastated. He planned to build a place of memorial for her, for his wife. And therefore, the coffin was placed in the field and around the field the construction began. 
But because the construction became increasingly intricate, with more and more detail being added, and with more fascinating things to be added to make it more beautiful, it took a long time. And as the time went on, the legend says that at one point, the Shah was going around the building site and trying to clear things, and he ordered this particular box to be thrown away. The strange thing is that the very box that he ended up throwing away was the reason why the building was being built. It was the coffin of his precious wife. Hard to believe, isn't it? But it's a legend. We don't know whether it's true or not. Yet there's some interesting truth right behind that kind of a story. And it's very appropriate to the stage of the journey that we are on right now with Nehemiah. Because they have begun the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. The story of Nehemiah so far has been all about bricks and mortar. And dealing with a project of rebuilding. And yet if we stop there, we're missing the point of why the walls had been rebuilt. And this is why this turn in the story is quite significant. Because right now, we're turning from building walls to rebuilding lives. I mean, I'm trying to imagine what the mood in the camp was. They they would have been working all those days. Commentators are saying probably 50 days straight. And it had been hard work. And they'd been attacked and undermined and discouraged because the rubble was great. And the work was progressing slowly. And the end is inside, it's done, it's finished. And then you would imagine that they, they would just kind of think, okay, well, let's just take a, some time off. Let's just go on a prolonged holiday. <laughs> let's just have a big party and put our feet up because the work's done. But that would have been a mistake. And this is why the move is now from property to people. And actually, we're coming back right where we should be. The reason... Jerusalem was rebuilt is because God's people had been sent into exile because their relationship with God had been broken up. So actually more than just the destruction of the temple and destruction of the walls of Jerusalem, the most important thing that had to be rebuilt was a destructing relationship between the Israelites and God himself. And this is why, while the building work is finished, the reconstruction of the wall is finished. This is a time for reinstruction. And this is a time for getting near to God's word. And it's really important. The PowerPoint wasn't working properly, so I might need your help. So if you've got a pen and paper, you might want to get it out because it will help you. Because I've got several points that would be worth noting down. Or if you've got just a phone or a device, again, just get it out. Because as you note it down, it might be helpful to you. But uh, the story takes a turn, not just in terms of the focus, but also in terms of the personality that's leading it. And I love this because this is all about team ministry. See, Ezra was a brilliant Bible scholar that several years before, together with Zerubbabel initially, so you've got three different people that are working at the rebuilding of the identity of the nation, 
not just the temple and the walls. And you got Zerubbabel in the first wave, and then you had Ezra in the second wave, and then Nehemiah comes along. But Nehemiah is encouraging Ezra, who is a Bible teacher, to come and actually re-engage people with God's word, speaking into their identity. Because it wasn't enough just to have the walls being rebuilt if they didn't know who they were and whose they were. And that's why it's so important to do this. And the way Ezra does that is by calling a, a public gathering on the seventh month. Uh, and, and the Israelites are gathering together. This would have been the Jewish equivalent of the new year in our times. The seventh month was a time in the Jewish calendar where they were celebrating the Feast of the Trumpets. Um, uh, uh, on the first day, the Day of Atonement, on the tenth day, and the Feast of the Tabernacle from the fifteenth day to the 21st day. You can read all about it in Leviticus 23. But this was a particularly significant time for the nation to get right with God. And they're using this opportunity. Fantastic. This is really great. Thank you. They're using this opportunity to really, really press in the importance of God's word. When the seventh month came and Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the Watergate. The way they engaged with the scriptures, really important to notice a sense of unity. This is the first thing. All of them gathered together. They assembled all as one man in the square before the Watergate. Coming together as one was incredibly important, and it was inclusive because all those who were able to come to listen, men, women, and all who were able to understand, they were all gathered together. All genders, all generations. And this would have been important. This was not exclusive. This was for all, and they had to come together as a group of people, as a people of God. This was public, not just private. And this was essential to engaging the scriptures. That's why on a Sunday, we gather together. And I believe gathering together on a Sunday under the authority of God is special, is powerful. Yes, I can listen to podcasts. Yes, I can listen to YouTube sermons. Yes, I can read books. But there is nothing like coming together as one, as God's people in unity, as a particular community of faith, under God's word. And this is what is happening there. And this is why Sunday gatherings are important. And increasingly we're facing the, 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 the interesting challenges in talking to pastors. And this is happening worldwide. The church has been bleeding probably anything between 15 and 20% of their attendance. And the thing that we find fascinating is that people haven't just moved churches. There's a lot of people that aren't physically attending churches. A good number of people for very, very objective reasons, because of ill health or because of concerns about their own health. But there are a lot of people who are healthy enough and strong enough who have totally disengaged. And instead of coming to their, together with their people on a Sunday in the public gathering under the word of God, they listen on Tuesdays to Stephen Furtick and on Fridays to John Piper, just so I please all corners, and whoever else you want. And they're just listening while they're driving to work to the sermon. It's not the same thing. And they know that the best way to engage with God's word is to come together 
in unity. The second thing that's really interesting, it says here, they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. They told Ezra the scribe. There was an intentionality. They were very intentional about wanting to hear God's word. It wasn't Nehemiah that says, Ezra, you better go and teach God's people. It wasn't Ezra that came to Nehemiah and said, Nehemiah, can I go and teach God's people? It was the people themselves that had this initiative. They had this hunger. They had this longing. They said, bring Ezra to teach us to bring the law of God. They realized that there was something missing. And the bricks and the mortar that fixed the wall wasn't enough to restore their identity and their relationship with God. So they called for the best person that was very skilled. Ezra was dedicated to knowing and teaching God's word. And he was the best person to try to do this. And there was that desire, that hunger for revelation that's within them. And again, it's a great encouragement for us. You know, do, do we have that intentionality? Do we have that hunger where we're saying, bring God's word, bring God's word. I always think in terms of preparation for Sundays, I pray whether I'm preaching or I'm not preaching and I'm praying for all the churches and I'm praying for all my colleagues who are serving and I'm praying that there be an anticipation in the congregation, that there be a hunger and thirst where we can't wait to hear God's word for us here at CFM. My, my, my prayer and my belief is that there's an element of not just dry teaching that comes from this I want to say pulpit, but it's not a pulpit. This stand. But I pray that it's the very Rima word of God. We're not just picking up a commentary and kind of reading to you what it says in the commentary, what somebody wrote, you know, 20 or 200 years ago. We are sitting under God and praying that the Holy Spirit will prophetically bring from the passage that which is suitable for us here. That's why we're not uploading anymore our messages on YouTube for Joe in Texas to watch it, thinking they're going to church because they're listening to the preaching. This preaching is for the people that belong to CFM because it's God's Rima word, prophetic, specific for us, for our community right here, right now. And my prayer is that we would have the same intentionality where we say, Lord, just speak to us. Speak to me. Correct me. Educate me, inspire me, encourage me, whatever I need. Lord, would you speak to me and to pray through the week and then come with such a sense of anticipation thinking, today God's going to speak to me and he's going to bring that word from his word that is suitable for me. Third thing, authority. As they assembled, what they asked Ezra to do, he says, bring Out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord has commanded for Israel. This had authority. This wasn't just a pep talk. This wasn't just a TED talk. This wasn't just an inspirational Instagram story. This was the authority the Lord commanded for Israel for this book to be read. It had weight. And as a result of it, they were coming in submission to it. We need to really focus, first and foremost, on what God has already said in the Scriptures. Because they have 
authority. Increasingly, we're navigating very challenging times. And if we don't learn this lesson really quick, we're kind of finding ourselves in very twisted places. Either we end up as people, uh, as, as our spiritual forefathers used to say, a people of one book, or we will find ourselves drifting away. Either we come to the conclusion that we're going to stick with what God has said and what is written in the scriptures. Otherwise, the winds of change will sweep us away. And they believed in that authority. They asked them to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded. Because if it is God's law, it will guide us for life. It will give us the wisdom for living. And the question is, do I submit to God's law? Is God's word God's law for me? <laughs> I'm submitting to the law in the land when I'm driving. And, and you do too, most of you. You know, we submit because that's the law of the land. In the same way, spiritually speaking, we know it's best for me and best for everybody, spiritually speaking, if what God says is what I live. And this is why it has that incredible encouragement of living under authority. The next thing, it says that all the people listened attentively. All the people listened attentively. This was important. It was a public gathering, and you can imagine it would have been uh, an environment where distractions could have been happening. Yet somehow the sense of coming intentionally under the authority of God's word, it caused them to be very attentive because this was crucial. This was important. And there is a sense in which they made sure that they gave their full attention to the reading and listening and understanding of God's word. And again, very important thing. I don't know about you, but my mind is increasingly distracted. My attention span is becoming horrendous. And I think I, I, I'm scared for those of my generation and under because I think there's been some irreversible neurological damage that the internet and everything, the, the way we're so wired to our devices has already done to our neural pathways. Studies are beginning to emerge of the damage and it's, it's cocaine for the brain. And, and we, we're already addicted. We're deeply addicted. And as a result of it, our attention span is very low. How many times, and I, I find it fascinating, how many times you go for a walk you know, out in the countryside, in the beautiful countryside, and everything looks great and everything sounds great with the birds singing and uh, I was going to say the sheep meowing, but that's not what they do. <laughs> uh, and, and, and you hear all the animals and you're out in the countryside and it's just unbelievably beautiful. And then you just see people with their ear pods on. Or even worse. You know, I see people walking their kids and pushing their prams and walking their dogs and they're scrolling while they're doing that. What's happened to us? I remember Banksy having one of his drawings where he had a, this is probably about 15 years ago, when we had bricks as mobile phones. We had a mobile phone and it, from the mobile phone it, it almost merged into the veins. What a prophetic picture. 
our attention span is very, very low and decreasing even more so. We need to fight this as God's people and relearn what it means to be attentive. Relearn what it means to put aside distractions. We learn what it means to Sabbath. We need to know what it means to meditate on Scripture. And listen slowly. They gave their attention to that. And I'm encouraging us to fight this and to try to remove all the distractions and ensure that we get good focus with God's Word. Because it's so essential as it was for them. Next thing, they did it responsively. The way it's described, it says that they stood, they lifted their hands, they responded, they said, Amen, Amen, and then afterwards they bowed down. You see, there's a beautiful thing here that every preacher loves to see. Well, at least I think most of them do. (laughs) Some might not. But the desire of the preacher is to see God's word create a reaction, almost like a chain reaction within the hearts of the hearers and motivate us to some action. And here there's a responsiveness to God's word. I mean, I was fascinated again reading about standing. If you go and are in a church in Romania, you would never ever read the Bible sitting down. And very often before the sermon, there's the reading of God's word and the whole congregation stands. And it's not just a habit. It's of saying we are honoring the word of God. This is God's word. This is not just a story. This is not just a book. This is the very word of God for us. I remember doing evangelism in Hansworth in Birmingham and visiting uh, Muslim houses. And... um, one of the first things that we were taught by the uh, evangelists that were working in that particular area is you never, ever put your Bible on the floor in a Muslim house. And sometimes I'm appalled, to be, to be fair, when I look at the way we treat our Bible, just throw it around, step on it, you know, just one of the worst things that I've seen it is, uh, you know, somebody was doing some painting work in a church building and there was an older sort of Bible and they just stood on it stepped on it as they were doing the painting, as it was some sort of a prop. I mean, it's a book, okay? We're not bibliolatrists. We're not worshipping the Bible. We're not bowing down before it. But this is the word of God still. And they stood with a sense of reverence and awe. And they responded. They were so excited about what they read. And it was this combination of joy and awe. I, I don't know why in churches we do this sort of almost opposite reactions kind of. Some churches do all very well and some people do joy very well, but it's both. They were excited and joyful and they go, amen, amen, this is great, this is fantastic. You know, this is like an African-American church on steroids, you know, just giving it the, yes, preach it. Say it, standing up, waving a handkerchief. (laughs) Giving it all. But also there was the reverence with bowing down. There was a responsiveness to God's word because revelation should always fuel an expression. If we're just hearing the word of God and going home, hands in our pockets going, I'm not talking about the preaching, I'm talking about the hearing of the reading of God's word should impact us deeply. There should be that chain reaction to responsiveness. 
Next one, clarity. They had a beautiful system here. And, and, and actually, there's a lot of things that are very, very clever. First of all, obviously, there's a big crowd that don't, didn't have amplification. But it's amazing what they managed to do in those times and how voices, voice projection was actually very helpful. But they obviously built this makeshift podium from which Ezra was teaching. But what the, he did, he had a team of other helpers who were probably gathering people in smaller groups. And then, as it says here, they were making it clear. They were giving it meaning so that the people understood. So there is that sense in which it wasn't just enough to hear the word of God, but it's helpful to understand what it means. How does it apply to them? It's a beautiful picture, if you want, of the importance of gathering and small groups. A great saying is about small groups is that very often circles are better for rows. We're in rows this morning, but we need circles through the week. The two are complementary to each other. And this is what you see here. You hear the reading of the word, but then there's the smaller groups, explanation and, and encouragement for application as other skilled people are helping him to do that. And again, it's team ministry. This is why I think the churches that are relying on superhero preachers, you know, are in a dangerous place. This is about team ministry. Nehemiah calls Ezra to do this. And Ezra enlists all the people whose names I read to you beautifully, almost worth an applause. And, you know, you see this, this, this bunch of, 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 of leaders, spiritual leaders, who are coming alongside Ezra and helping him as he teach God's people. And this is so important because there's, an, there's a pro process in which proclamation takes place. But then you need to have the explanation and then the discussion. And this is why we're doing what we're doing in our small groups. Every church does it differently. You know, you can have churches that say, every small group, you do whatever you want. You can study second coming, you know, and you get, you know, groups that study for the last 17 years. They've been studying the second coming of Jesus. You get another, another church where, you know... Uh, the leader gets to choose or devote on some sort of a, you know, we're doing Beth Moore studies or we're doing Andy Stanley studies or we're doing J. John studies. Everybody does this. We settled on this model that we're doing in terms of our gatherings and group ministries in which we're encouraging people to reopen the passage that we look on Sunday. We give some guiding questions. They are what they are. But we're encouraging people to press in hard on explanation and application even more. Because you're sitting there, and I'm saying something, or Ian's saying something, or whoever's preaching is saying something, and you're sitting there and going, how does that work? Well, obviously, we can't, you know, we're good prophetically, but we're not that good. We can't read your mind and try to answer straight away. And we're not doing a squiddle poll, you know, which can text your question, and we're like, okay, let's try to answer that. But in your small group, with a bunch of people that you care for, and they care for you, in a safety way... You know, you would never dare ask a question publicly, but in, in that group with people that are your friends, you can say, guys, it might sound a bit dumb, but how would you do that? And you can say it safely. Or the other way that it works really great, and, and this is what I, I, I do, when I open up and I say, guys, you know, we talked about prayer. What works for you? What did you find that's encouraging you? 
And invariably, you find that there are people there that, you know, they've learned something, and they could be ahead in the journey of faith by some years, or they could be behind you in the journey of faith. By, but they found something, and you think, I never thought about that. This is great. So we're learning from each other, and we're also keeping each other accountable. Because I can't keep you accountable. You didn't tell me, you know, that you're behind Ian on your Bible reading. You know, so I don't know. I can't. But you're in your small group, and you've said to your small group, guys, I need some prayer because I kind of got slack. It's not true. He's not. I'm just using him as an example because he keeps making fun of me, so I've got to take my revenge. It's a dangerous thing because he's much sharper with his humor than I am. Should have never started this. (laughs) Need to put a clause in the contract tomorrow morning. So, you know, he could be sharing with his group that he's struggling. And then next week when it comes, this is what group is about. They're saying, hey, and have you picked it up? Because it's safe. They don't judge you. They don't condemn you. They don't criticize you. They are for you. And they want you to thrive. And that's what we do in the small groups. We pick up the message from Sunday. And we look at it. And we bring that sense of what is happening here with the explanation, with the accountability, with the application. I always say to the group leaders, make sure there's application. Sermons without application, they might as well not be. You know, I know the theory. I've, 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 I've grown up in church since the age of nine. I, I know loads of theory. It's the connecting of the dots of how does that look like on Monday? How does that look like in my family life? How does that look like with my neighbors? How does that look like in my work or vocation? That's where we fall short. And that's where we get the help by being in a group like they were, with a sense of clarity that is being put in there. I'm amazed at how easily the seed of God's word, as Jesus said in the parable of the sower, is very often not going deep. It's superficial. Or sometimes it gets stolen by the birds. And sometimes it gets choked by the weeds. You know, we could do a test, you know, what, you, you know, what was the message like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, or whatever. You know, I preached it and I can't remember sometimes. You know, it's so easy to forget. But we want to make sure that God's word can get in as deep as possible. And we're using the means of being in a small group to actually do that. So these are several principles that we find in here. The sense of unity, intentionality, authority attentiveness, responsively, clarity, all the different things that they did as they came to God's word and engaged with it. I'm praying that God will continue to foster amongst us. We're a Bible-loving church. In fact, I always say, if I'm really frank with people around, I think we've got loads of things that were very different. We like different types of music. We like different... Ideas about mission and outreach. We uh, have definitely different political views on things. Um, We have different cultural backgrounds. We're coming from different nations. Um, Some are coming from an urban environment, some from a rural environment. We are very different. But the one thing that CFM has is a great love for God's word. It's, It's what keeps us together. It's the glue that keeps us together. Let's keep growing in that because it's so significant. Let's keep growing both in our desire and discipline towards God's word. 
So I'm encouraging maybe, a girl, you know, we were banging the same drum and we're going to keep banging it. You know, start reading the Bible for yourself. And there's loads of ways to do it. There's not just one way to do it. Some people want to read the whole Bible in a year. Maybe you just want to pick up one of the Gospels. And if you're kind of stuck and think, how do I do it? Just bring an email to us as pastors. And we'd, we'd love to try to, to, to help in that. So start to read the Bible personally. Ask us. Honestly, uh, we can function as consultants on this. And the only thing that gives us experience is many, many failures in that area. But we want to come alongside and, and try to encourage you in your own personal reading of the Bible. Pray and prepare for Sundays. You know, don't just come and think, yeah, whatever. Come with a hunger for God's word. You'd be surprised how much more our hearts would be impacted if there's a real hunger that the Spirit of God can connect with. Belong to a connect group is just what I explained to you. Coming on a Sunday is good, it's helpful, but you will be so much more enhanced if you belong to a connect group where you can begin to learn even more about God's Word as you share in terms of application and accountability with the rest of the people. And then we obviously have a Bible study on, on, on Zoom on a Tuesday night. If you've got, and it, it will apply to a certain uh, group of people who probably have a little bit more time, you know, or you, you want to make some more time, why don't you join in? You will really love it because you will learn new things. And I think the most important thing that's on the heart of those who lead the Bible study, it's not that you will learn things, but you will get a deeper hunger for yourself to get into God's Word. So not just knowing more facts. You will get to know more facts. And, 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 and you will get to know how to understand Scripture. And you will get a bigger desire in your own heart to try to engage with God's Word together. So let's pray that that would be the case as we go forward in this opportunity. It's amazing that Jesus really has a great heart for us to grow in this. We are at the turning point just like Nehemiah and uh, David, you can, guys can come back. We're at a turning point as a church, I think, just like Nehemiah and Ezra with a rebuilding. We've got a building next door that has been in, in birthing a long, long time. And I think as a church, we really need to grasp this. A, because I think there's, there's some of you that we're not building people. You know, you kind of thought, okay, it's a building. Not, you know, it's, it's, it costs what it costs, and the money could be spent somewhere else, and we're not really big fans of building, just as I say. Not, not in a narky way, not in an aggressive way, but just not, not your thing. There'll be other people that, you know, are here, and they're thinking, I don't really know anything about the building. In fact, some of you have never even been in Hunter Street, our other building, because your own engagement is very much with Sunday morning. I think we're at a very significant time, just like Ezra and Nehemiah were. This was not about just rebuilding walls. For them, it was about restoring a relationship with God and restoring an identity God had given the Israelites. The Israelites were supposed to be a light for all the other nations. Blessing was supposed to come through them on all the other nations. And they had lost that. And this is the turning point. 
This is the beginning of that turning point when suddenly they realize that in order to be really effective in the calling God had given them amongst the nations, they had to once again begin to be the people of the book who worship the living God and become a witness for all those around them. If we're going to be opening that building in March and everything stays the same as it's been until now, we've missed the point. The opening of the building isn't about the building and the building isn't about the building. The building is about our identity, who we are as a church in this area. And we really need to not make the mistake many have made. And you can hear countless numbers of stories of people who've labored hard, built the building, and then the building ended up being empty or half empty or being ended up being sold. There's also stories of great success, which we want to be. And therefore, my prayer at this time is that we would be so indwelt by the word of God that actually there'd be a chain reaction happening around us that will motivate us to begin to experience a sense of renewal and revival from God that would actually make the the welcome gift that God has given them of a new building totally transform this church. God is looking for servants. God is looking for servants. I'll give you one example. We had an email from a staff member here who wanted to do some work supporting parents with children with special educational needs. And I said, we want to use a building that's neutral, that's not a high school, where parents might find it a little bit awkward to come into because it's, it's a little bit challenging. And we wondered, when your new building is open, would we possibly be able to use to have a meeting to support those parents who are doing a great job and facing tremendous opportunities? And straight away, I, I said to them, uh, I said, we would just love to host you. We would just love to have a team of people doing some bruise and welcoming people and being a friendly face there. It's saying to our community, we're standing with you. And we want to see the love of Jesus be reflected in that. Isn't that an amazing opportunity? You know what the irony is? We might put a notice in a couple of months' time. We need some people for bruise. And we're scraping for volunteers. And my prayer is that there'll be this tremendous work of God within us. That the Lord would speak to us individually and just fill us with a sense of vision. And I'm telling you, people are asking me, you know, what's the vision? What's the programs? We don't need visions and programs. We just need responsive hearts because I'm telling you, God's just going to bring opportunities. And it might look like making brews for, for those kind of families. But it will have a phenomenal impact on those families' lives. So I'm just dripping some vision into your hearts. 
Let's experience this incredible change as the wars are finished. We're praying now that the Lord would begin to move stronger in our hearts. And you don't need to be a building person. (laughs) Everybody here is a people person, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people persons, not building persons. The building is just a phenomenal tool and a gift from God that will house incredible opportunities. We want to do some work with the young people. We need volunteers. We need people who are willing to serve. We want to host some of the football ministries in there. Prepare some brews. Give the guys some room. And in, as we're making maybe some brews, some guys are going to share about their child born with a disability and their failing marriage. And we get to pray with them. Who's to say what will come? They're sharing about a grandma or a granddad that passed away and they're dealing with grief. Who's to say what will come? But in order to get to that stage, we need somebody who's going to say, sign me up for the bruise. I'm going to be there. Sign me up for sweeping the building. Sign me up for opening up the doors. Sign me up for just being there and being ready to encourage somebody. We need you in order to see God move in a powerful way in this community. So this is the turning point. But it comes through the scriptures as God speaks to us and we see him. Let's pray together. Let's stand and worship. And I'll just pray for us before Dave leads us into this song. Listen, I'm not a specialist on end times. I, I sense, though, that the return of Jesus is gathering pace. I was standing outside last night with one of my neighbors. He was driving to the hospital. He was in absolute bits. Together with the family to say goodbye to his wife. We'd had a similar situation as my dad did a couple of weeks ago and she'd never come out of hospital. And as tears were rolling on his cheeks, old gentleman, stern, yet absolutely broken-hearted, I sensed the prompt of God in my heart, and I want to pass it on to you as well. We're living in difficult times. We're living in end times. The door of grace is still open. I don't know where my lady neighbor was. I've given them Bibles. I've invited them to church services. I pray for them every day. But I just long for people to be with Jesus and to know Jesus in our community. And I'm praying that there be a sense of urgency that the Holy Spirit will pour into my heart and to your heart. A greater sense of compassion, a greater sense of calling, a greater sense of this is the time. There's no time for waiting. There's no time for being distracted with other agendas. This is the time to seize the opportunity to be the ambassadors of hope, forgiveness, and new life that Jesus has called us to be.
Jesus, take hold of our hearts afresh and help us in these times to look up to you and to be ready, to be ready to reach out to those around us with your love.